If you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to the 16th chapter of the Gospel of Mark. Can you believe we finally got there? (laughs) We've been working through Mark's Gospel verse by verse, if you're new, by the way, and we started in, in May of 2017. We had bits and pieces of breaks here and there, but here we are this morning, not by man's design, but by God's design that providence worked out, and so we're going to read the first eight verses of Mark's gospel, and just by way of reminder, when we're through here, we have a lovely little um, breakfast, donuts and fruit and things like that we can all enjoy when our time is, is done, so just keep that in mind. All right, Mark's gospel, chapter 16. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples and Peter, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as I, just as he told you, trembling And bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. All right, let's let's pray together. And if I don't get a chance to tell you personally, God bless you this Easter holiday. And may his bounty be at your table and his goodness be in your home. So let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful for all that we've said and, and we've read and we've sung so far this Easter morning. And we would be equally grateful now, God, if you would teach us by your Spirit from these verses in order that Christ will be set before us clearly and honestly and the authority he holds over all our lives will be unmistaken, it'll be clear, and it will be appreciated. God, you've been so good to us for so long and we just want to thank you for that. And we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, whenever a person discovers that Jesus Christ is alive, it will be the, either the most incredible moment of their lives or it can be a very telling moment in their life. Because not only is the resurrection of Christ central to the Christian message, in other words, if there is not one, then we have nothing to say to anyone, least of all ourselves. But the resurrection also comes to limit a person in the best of ways As against all the great number of religions in the world, Christianity claims exclusivity. In other words, that this is the only one which is completely true and the only one that matters and can get you past death and get you into an eternity with God and the new heaven and the new earth. And oftentimes when Christianity makes that claim, that exclusivity claim, it is immediately challenged which is wonderful because we love people, we love the truth, and our message will hold up. Yet even in that, the truth is, every other religion has some uh, non-negotiables in them, some kind of exclusivity to them. For example, Hinduism. 
of which there are over 1.1 billion followers, they have two non-negotiable beliefs, karma and reincarnation. And no Hindu can give those away and remain a Hindu. Buddhism says there's, there is to be no self, that the self as we understand it does not exist, and the ending of desire in us will be the key and the cause to the end of all suffering in the world. And if a Buddhist denies this, then they can't be a Buddhist. Islam believes that Mohammed is the last and final prophet, and the Quran is the perfect revelation, and if they deny these two premises, then they deny Islam. Even a naturalism or a materialism teaches that anything miraculous or supernatural is outside the realm of observable evidence. And they say, so if you can't see it and you can't touch it, then the best you can do is give your opinion, but you can't give any certainties. And you may be here and you have your own little cocktail of religion and maybe it involves Jesus and you say something like, me and Jesus, we've got our own thing going and we don't need anybody, as the song says, to tell us what it's all about, especially a guy like me. Finally, as you think about the broader culture, there's a general sense as people view the world that nobody believes anybody, but everybody believes themselves. You understand that? Nobody believes anybody, but everybody believes themselves. Therefore, people can take comfort in their own rightness. And that's probably one of the reasons why we live in a world right now is, which is heavy on condemnation. However, Christianity believes that Christ is God's only son, born of a virgin, begotten, meaning that when you see Jesus Christ, you actually see God. And Christ was dead, and he was buried, and he is risen. He died, as we sang a moment ago, to pay the penalty of sin. He was risen to reveal it's all true, and he's the only Savior and the only Redeemer there is, and you need him. And I want you to think about this. Among all the other religions of the world, Christianity is the only one which promises ultimate justice and still offers mercy. There's no other religion in the world that offers mercy, mercy because every other religion says, you've got to do something. There are some religions that offer justice, but basically you say, you better be perfect if you're going to enter into the next life. Christianity is the only religion that promises justice and still offers mercy. And so we can't deny those things and still call ourselves a Christian. So, so exclusivity in some ways is everywhere. Truth by its very definition, is exclusive, which means everything can't be true, right? Because if everything is true, then nothing is false. And if nothing is false, then it would also be true to say everything is false. And we can't have it both ways. I want you to think with me. Two claimed truths which oppose each other. For example, Islam says that Jesus Christ did not die on a cross. Christianity affirms and we glory in the fact that Christ died on the cross. Two claimed truths opposing each other They can't be both true. I mean, just think of it on a kid level. Did you eat your vegetables? Yes, I did. Then why are your vegetables still on the plate? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Some metaphysical reality going on that I don't know about. So so what do we do? Well, we investigate, we, we examine, we study. If Christianity says that our eternal destiny hinges on only the resurrection of Christ then that is one compelling reason to investigate. 
Christianity has never been about, you know, don't, don't pick a side unless it's ours. Rather, it's always been, you come check us out and live. And if you think about it, why would a person, which is always confusing to me, but why would a person blow off something as precious as their life past death? And so when you open your Bible and you investigate, you'll find that whenever people discover Jesus Christ is alive, then then their lives have to reckon with that reality. The best example in the Bible is is Saul of Tarsus, who you know is Paul. So Paul was a religious Jew. He was convinced that Jesus was dead. He, He said the gospel was a joke and anyone who followed Jesus deserved prison or death. And then immediately one day, he's literally knocked off his feet because he saw the risen Christ. And as a result of this, because Jesus never leaves a person the same way, Paul became a preacher of the good news, and he actually wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. And one of the things he said to a real city, to real Christians in a real city, was, this is 1 Corinthians 15, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins, he was buried, He was raised on the third day and he appeared. That is the core basic truth of Christianity. And he goes on to tell them how essential the resurrection is. And he's telling people who who base their whole life and their whole future on the fact that Jesus Christ is alive. And he said to them, if Christ isn't risen, your faith is a complete waste of time. Your sins haven't been forgiven. And you're just kind of spinning your wheels. And you should be pitied. Which means this eyewitness to the risen Christ says Christianity without the resurrection is not like a Christianity without a final chapter. It's not Christianity at all. If there's no resurrection, then there's no Christianity. So I want you to know that Christianity is always not like the Hallmark Channel. I mean, it's a good channel. Right? But on earth, it's not like we always have happy endings. Couples don't always make up. Our, our kids aren't always, you know, like investment bankers and Olympic athletes and Nobel Peace Prize winners, right? It's not true. So Christianity doesn't promise that. But this is what it promises. Your sins, which are many, are forgiven. And you are loved. And you will be in Christ righteous before God all the time. And it says, our future after death is incredible, it's indestructible, and you can't even think in your mind how awesome heaven, the new heaven and the new earth will be. So what do you say we examine the resurrection? We're going to look at the record, we're going to look at the relevance of it, and then we're going to call for a response. First of all, the record, if your Bible is open, you'll see this, chapter 15, verse 40. I mean, there's no doubt that Jesus was dead. We have eyewitnesses here. Verse 40, some women watched Jesus from a distance, namely Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and and a few others. And these two Marys, chapter 15, verse 47, they watched as a gentleman named Joseph of Arimathea, another eyewitness, took down the body of Christ, wrapped it in linen, placed it in a tomb, cut out of a rock, and rolled that big old stone against the entrance. And now here they are, chapter 16, verse 1. We read this as a witness in a moment to the resurrection. And this, to me, makes the record very believable, but it also makes it, listen carefully, very verifiable. You can check this out for three reasons. One, ask yourself, we talked about this Good Friday evening. Why would Mark make up a storyline which had women witnesses? 
whose testimony in that time and in that place was useless in a court of law. I mean, ladies at the time had no legal status at all. So it's almost like these ladies were an ancient Me Too movement, right? Verse 11, the men didn't believe them. They go into court. They would not believe them. That's the first reason. The second reason is why in the world would women with such courage, courage that the original 12 disciples, all male, didn't have, they left Jesus in his hour of great need. These ladies are with Jesus Why would such loyal ladies lie just about 36 hours later to say that Jesus is alive? I mean, why would they do that? I find that hard to believe for this reason. If they said it and it was a lie, the disciples and anyone else that heard it in a matter of minutes could just go to the tomb to see if what they were saying was true or not. And three... The heat is still on. And there should be cause for real fear for these ladies. As Jesus' murderers, the the, uh, Jewish and Roman authorities, they're still in power. They still hate Jesus. And if they were prepared to kill Jesus, they would be equally prepared to kill his followers. Especially since one of these ladies, Mary Magdalene, she was more than likely an ex-prostitute. The other lady, more than likely the earthly mother of Jesus. So they'd be like, ladies, just keep talking. Really? I mean, we can get rid of you just like that. Now, the record of Mark is telling the whole truth, right? And nothing but the truth. He's not trying to to sweeten it up. So he goes on to say that the corpse is now lying in a cold-borrowed wealthy person's tomb. And the ladies, on the way, mind you. So this is like, this is how life is, on the way. They didn't think this through. Verse 3, do you see it there? Who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? And if you think about it, that gives another layer of authenticity to the story. Because all of a sudden it dawns on them on the way that there's no way that they they themselves are going to be able to remove some stone which weighs somewhere between two to 4,000 pounds so they could get to the body of Jesus and anoint it. And beyond that, these ladies have have experienced three things, three things which would justifiably take the wind out of anybody's life. Here they are. These women experienced grief in the death of Jesus, fear in the face of his killers, and, and essentially powerlessness to get to the body, do what they wanted to do because of that stone. I mean, if you think about it, it's a horrible emotional cocktail for the human condition. It's grief, it's fear, it's powerlessness. If you've known grief and fear and powerlessness, then you know these, what these ladies are doing. So they've never had the chance to say the goodbye to Jesus. They loved him. They can't say goodbye. You don't need to know this, but yesterday my mother was in the emergency room. And I was thinking about this as I was thinking about her. Because we're really, really far from each other. And I just have to live with the fact that the reality for me to be at their deathbed, mom or dad, or anyone else in my family... It's pretty low. So there's a good chance that I'm never going to get to say I love you or I'm sorry or goodbye before they die. And that to me, psychologists tell me this, it could be overwhelming. Because those words and to see that setting can make such a difference. These ladies had no chance to say goodbye. They had no chance to move the stone. But they had a good chance of heading into trouble. 
And besides, if you think about it, it was only, what, five days ago where the crowd was like, Jesus, Jesus, he's our man. Remember Palm Sunday? Nobody saw this coming. And now, verse 3, he's dead, and they can't even get to the body to just do some good spices, pay the respects, say their goodbyes. So I want you to do this just for a moment if your Bible's open. Take your fingers and cover up verses 4, 5, and 6. Act like it's not there. And then I want you to do this. In your mind's eye, pretend like you're really, really sick. And you know that your life is just like seconds away. And let's say I come to see you, and usually what I do when someone's sick or dying, I open up the Bible and I read to them. And let's say I read to you Mark chapter 16, verses 1 to 3, but because there was no verse 4, 5, and 6, I ended at 3. Just look at that. No resurrection. Stop at verse 3 and then tell you, well, you lived a lovely life. It's been a real pleasure to know you. Goodbye forever. That would be terrible. The best you could do in that moment is just say, you could just look back. So I want you to know that in one sense, Christianity is terrible at goodbyes. Because we know death is not natural. It's God's penalty on sin. We also know that Jesus died to pay that penalty. So a Christian's best look is always forward. So look forward. Verse 4, you can take your fingers off the text there. Coming to the tomb, they assume Jesus is in the tomb. However, you see it there when they look up, they saw the stone, very large, had been rolled away. And as they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side as they were alarmed. Well, who wouldn't be, right? This is a tomb. There's no body. There's just a guy in a tomb sitting there. And then he blurts out, verse 6, do you see it there? Don't be alarmed. (laughs) Thank you. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. So I want you to just say, just for a second, there's no sense that they had come to the wrong place or the stranger who was talking was talking about someone else. Jesus the Nazarene, right? Which says that Jesus was a real man who lived in a real place who ate and worked and slept and washed and breathed and, and bled and died. And his death was real. His body was buried. But he's not there in the tomb. And then there's those three words that change the world forever, right? Three words. Verse 6, midstream. He has risen. There's a Christian apologist. His name is John Lennox. He travels broadly, dialogues with atheists, and has debates and so on. So he's met head-to-head with Peter Singer and Sam Harris, just two atheists. And this is what he said on one occasion. Some people say Christianity is a fairy story for people who are afraid of the dark. He says, I say atheism is a fairy story story for people afraid of the light. Because the Christians believe what Nick Gagalisa said moments before he died. He said, Christos Anatesti, Christ is risen, and then he died. So please look down, verse 6, last two sentences. He's not here, right? Have a look. See the place where they laid him. And by the way, the young man that's speaking... Mark calls him, an, or excuse me, Matthew says he's an angel. Let's just talk about that just for a second, okay? So if you're wondering about the angel stuff, let me just say to you that that is authentic Christianity. Because authentic Christianity is just not, it's not like, you know, tamed and harmless. So, you know, be good and be nice. Authentic Christianity is not a series of, you know, life 
tips and cliches. Authentic Christianity is not a political movement. Authentic Christianity is not a list of do's and don'ts and regulations. And if we do the do's and don'ts just right, then we can make ourselves acceptable to God. No, authentic Christianity is filled with difficult parts. Full of parts that say, hey, wait a minute. Indeed, the resurrection tells us there is more than human operation happening here. And that's okay. Christianity hinges on supernatural events, right? A virgin birth, death, defeated, sins, paid. And Christianity has those moments where you have to say, only God could have done that. Only God could have done that. So don't be overwhelmed, I guess, if you see there's an angel there who Mark describes as a young man. And don't be surprised, verse 7, that he just gives the ladies orders immediately. You see it there? He tells the ladies to tell the disciples and Peter, which was a nice way of saying, Peter, you're still on the team. You remember Peter at Jesus' great hour of need just totally tanked on Jesus, even though he told them before that he wouldn't. But anyway, he says, go to Galilee, Jesus will meet you there. And their reaction, you see it there, is what? Oh, they were singing, up from the grave he arose. Is that what it says there? Were they going, oh, we believe, we'll get right after it. Verse 8, overwhelming fear. In fact, I counted six negatives. You see them there in verse 8? Six negatives. They were trembling, negative. Bewildered, negative. The women went out and fled, negative. Because they were afraid, negative. They said nothing to no one, negative. Because they were afraid, negative. I mean, if you think about it, this is a desperate ending. It's full of fear. Now, I would love to go through each of the words, but let me just say the word flee, as in the ladies, after that moment, just fleed. In the Greek language, which is the language of the New Testament, flee has this understanding of like you're running, you're fleeing from a wild animal. That's exactly what these ladies were doing. When they saw everything, they ran out of there afraid. Now I want you to look at me. You won't see that scene on an Easter card, will you? Right? (laughs) Of course not. I mean, the times that we live in and, and a few years back, we always try to sanitize Easter, right? So the Easter card's a little bit of blood there, just a little bit there, and a little bit of blood. And everybody's happy. And there's a lot of white everywhere. When I was a kid, my, my mother, God bless her, she, she like made us wear Easter white every Easter, you know. And I'd look at her and I'd go, no, dear woman, you know that it's not going to stay white very long. We just Before I put it on, let's just get that out of the way. The Bible doesn't try to make the story believable. It just writes what happened. There's a bloody blob of a man who's dying on the cross for people's sin. They're yelling at him to come down. He's not going to come down. He dies. He's buried. And now look at your Bible. Two nice ladies who previously had, the, had great courage to stay with Jesus until the bitter end are now running like crazy ladies as if they're running from a wild animal in fear because a nice and bright young man dressed in white said, Jesus is alive, and look in the tomb and go tell people. Go tell them. You see, that's what makes the story so believable to me. It's incredible. This, this is how life works. It wasn't just a little bit of blood and nice white hair and woo woo No. 
It, it is human. In fact, let me just give you a human example. Last night, my job was to clean the house before the Easter people came over today. So I was cleaning the house and I took out the garbage. Where I take out the garbage is a dark corner. Dark corner, I hear this. Okay, so if you know me, you know exactly what I did. I threw the garbage down and I read, excuse me, I ran like these ladies in fear. And I didn't say like, he is risen. I'm like, oh Lord, please let that front door still be open. I'm still wondering if my neighbor saw me. I don't know yet, but I imagine the next time I look at him, I'll know. That's the record from Mark. Now to the relevance, okay? So if you're like, why does the resurrection even matter? Well, maybe a better question we could ask is, if it didn't matter, then why are there so many people trying to disprove the resurrection? Just relentless, right from the beginning of the gospel, uh, the end of the story, if you would, and from years and years past. People have tried to argue the disciples stole the body. That was in the Gospels. Or or the Jews stole the body. Or a wild beast and a wild dog ate the body. Or Jesus didn't really have a human body. Or Jesus didn't really die on a cross. This is a great one. But he actually was resuscitated and he moved to France with a couple of girls. Right? That's the Da Vinci Code. In fact, I found out this week, there's a tour you can take in June of 2019, if you're free, Transformational Tours of Southern France. It's led by a psychic, Bart Sharp, and he's going to take you to all the places that his uh, avatar told him that Jesus was in France after the um, crucifixion, but when he really didn't die. And yet, when you read the eyewitness, the, the testimonies in all the Gospels, and, and you're thinking all those arguments just kind of crumble. And this gospel record holds. And you know that throughout history, individuals who once said, no, Jesus did not rise, but they put up a careful investigation, they changed their mind and said, yes, Jesus did rise. Let's, let me give you one example. Simon Greenleaf. If you don't know anything about him, read about him. He was one of the greatest experts on evidence the world has ever known. He taught at Harvard uh, at the end of the 19th century. And he was going to write a book to say, listen, I'm going to disprove Christianity. This is going to be easy. It'll take me a few months. But he, he dives into it at least as an, onyx, as an onyx skeptic. And all of a sudden, as he takes in all the evidence, he changes his mind. Listen to what he wrote. This is his conclusion. Christianity is, in fact, the only evidential, historical, verifiable religion. In other words, it's the only one with enough evidence you can check out to say whether it's true or not true in the world. And that the Christian faith rests on evidence Evidence I find so compelling and so overwhelming that any honest person examining it with an open mind would, like myself, be inescapably drawn to accept it. Therefore, Christianity grounded in truth, the relevance of the resurrection of Christ means everything sad and bad in this world is coming untrue. Right? Everything sad and bad in this world is going to come untrue, that all of this is going to stop, and all of this is going to be made new, and that this which will be made new is never going to be horrible again. 
Right? Let's just walk through this. We will never know hate again. You'll never know fear again. You'll never be jealous again. I hate when I'm jealous. You'll never be bullied. We'll never know sickness, cancer, and the rest. And anything bad or sad or wrong is going to be gone forever. And that's why God relentlessly offers people his grace. People who don't deserve it, people who don't seek it or even appreciate it so they can be part of the new this. So this week I read a little bit a little bit about army ants, and the reason why I read about army ants is I was reading my Bible, book of Proverbs, and it said, look to the ant and be wise. So I needed some wisdom, and I googled ants. And I came across something about army ants. And you might know this, but this is the first time I ever knew this. They have what's called the death spiral. And so essentially, one army ant, a leader, starts to walk in circles, and he's moving around and around and around, and all of a sudden, when he starts to do that, other army ants begin to follow them, and the circle just grows and grows and grows. In fact, the largest circular mill is what they call that, which has been recorded 1,200 feet in circumference. So they just keep going round and round and round to the point of exhaustion, and then starvation takes its toll, and then one by one, they just start dying off. Hence the name, the the death spiral. And all of it because they followed one ant. Go to the ant and be wise. And I said to myself, Jeepers Keepers, Joe, you better be careful who you follow. And if you follow someone, you better find out quickly where they're headed. It's a great question. Who are we following? And in your answer to who are you following or even what you're following, does it have any relevance, any bearing past death? Can he or she or it, can, can it hold up past death? Can it be said, he has risen, and so you'll be risen? And you see, this is what makes Christianity so relevant. God made us for himself. That is where your relevance begins. Jesus gives meaning to your life and all the things of time in such a way that you don't rely on the things of time as the be-all and the end-all of your life. And the resurrection, why it's so relevant, it affirms that Christian salvation is not a reward for the righteous, but a gift for the people who say we're guilty. The resurrection affirms the gospel. The only story, I want you to think about this, the only story where the hero dies for the villain. That's the gospel. Well, people say, well, I really don't really give a little hoot about what happens past death. All I care about is now. Well, let me ask you this. Is now that great? And I bet, like me, you get empty when you charge into earthbound stuff. Cash, projects, vacations, accomplish a goal. And I bet that your inner peace is so circumstantial. I read this week of a famous marathon runner. He was being interviewed and he said, At the end of the race, when I know I did my best, in that moment, nothing else can get to me. And the reporter goes, what about your next moment? And the moment after that, because you can't keep running forever. So the sense of frustration and emptiness, the man as man knows, he's only met by Jesus. He's the only one that can quench your unquenchable thirst. He's defeated death. He says death is like falling asleep and then you die and you wake up in his arms. Final point, the record, it holds up. 
The relevance is compelling. Finally, our response. So every once in a while, you'll get an invite to a party. And on the invite, I'll say RSVP, right? And you read that, and you know you have to tell whether you're in or whether you're out. It's the same way. God keeps relentlessly sending these invitations. And you need to get back to him if you haven't gotten back to him. You got to tell him either you're in or you're out. His invitation is really clear. You come to me just as you are. I'll take care of the rest. His requirement, repentance, and, and belief on Jesus Christ that his death has truly paid the penalty for all your sins. So that in Jesus, you don't owe God a thing. His warning is very clear. You're going to die in your sins if you're out. If you have no belief towards the cross and towards the resurrection. So are you in or you're out? Have you RSVP'd? First thing in the morning yesterday, my sister sent me a text. And in the text, she said, do you like this song? I like songs in general. And I said, well, let's see. It was Stevie Wonder. I don't really listen to him a lot, to be honest with you. And the song was called A Place in the Sun. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) I about cried. Listen to the last verse. Like an old dusty road. (laughs) I get weary from the load. Moving on, moving on, like this tired, troubled earth. I've been rolling since my birth. Moving on, moving on. And then the refrain, there's a place in the sun where there's hope for everyone, where my poor, restless heart's got to run. There's a place in the sun, and before my life is done, got to find me the place In the sun. Christianity has been affirming for 2,000 years that place and that person is found, and it's Jesus Christ. God bless you this Easter. I'm going to hang out here if you want to talk. Let's pray. The Bible says, For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Father, will you please look upon us in love and pour out your grace over over everyone. We want to thank you that your son is alive, that the resurrection is a compelling truth, and we ask that you would build his life in all of us. And may, Father, you equip us with everything we need for doing your will, and may you work in all of us what is pleasing to you through Jesus Christ. May everyone in this room know Jesus and know your blessing. Amen.